All right, welcome back to today's episode of What Can We Do? I'm Haley Heathman. Today I am joined by Hannah Frankman, the rebel educator. Uh, Hannah grew up homeschooled, she skipped college, and has been living and breathing alternative education ever since. She is the former program manager of Praxis, a college alternative program, and a former homeschool teacher and tutor. She's an advocate for school choice, educational innovation, self-directed learning, and unschooling. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Haley. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so um, we're going to just dive in. We're going to talk about all things homeschool, but um, or just alternative education, I should say. It's not always homeschool. And... Um, that's, uh, I guess maybe we'll start there because um, I think people think that your only alternatives, your only options are um, public school, uh, private school, which they can't afford, or homeschool. And um, I think that's probably how you got on my radar was on Twitter. And you put together a really cool uh, Twitter thread um, about all the various other types of education programs and schools and uh, options that we have. And so why don't you get started talking to me about some of that? Yeah, there's there's a lot out there. And this is a huge part of why I became really active on Twitter. And as like a writer and a podcaster talking about education is because there are so many resources out there, but it's so hard for parents to find them. Like if you don't know somebody who knows a rabbit hole to send you down or information to, to send your way. It's really, really hard to find stuff and to appreciate just how broad the the breadth of, of options really is. But there's a lot of options out there for people who don't want their kids in government school and for people who don't want their kids in um, traditional school in a broader sense. And by traditional school, I mean a model of schooling that follows what happens in public school, because it's not just like the government schools that are the problem. It's the entire mechanism of educating our kids that is flawed. And there's a lot of alternatives to the public school system that are basically just copying what happens in a government classroom and making it privatized in some way. So there's a lot of private schools that are like, they have a religious affiliation or they have a, some type of secular affiliation and the the idea is to like be able to infuse the curriculum with that sort of that that emphasis but it's still exactly what you would be doing in public school and none of the problems that come from that education approach are resolved um i'm really careful about the language i use when i'm talking about homeschooling too because the same thing happens there where people will they'll homeschool their kids but basically they'll just take the public school curriculum and and take it to their kitchen table and that's not really the point of homeschooling so there's a lot of different options out there for people who are interested. There's a lot of really interesting models. Um, unschooling is a really big one that probably a fair amount of people have heard of that one, um, which is basically just like a much more self-directed, hands-off approach to homeschooling um, and lots of different types of homeschooling too. There's a really big micro-school movement that's emerged over the past few years. Uh, a micro-school is basically like a smaller often like a one room schoolhouse kind of style elementary school often where it's like you have like third through sixth graders or first through sixth graders, like whatever the range is. Um, and you'll have like 10 kids or something working with one teacher in a, in a local private community style school. 
Um, there's a lot of different online schools that are emerging. And again, the language is you need to be really precise about it because people think online school and they're like, you mean what we had on Zoom during COVID? And that's not what it is at all. Mm-hmm. But like very innovative, like project-based online schools and Socratic-based online schools and game-based online schools where kids can, you know, based on their interests, they can find other peers and teachers and, and an education model that allows them to to grow and thrive in the ways that are interesting to them. Um, and there's like really big networks too of, of different school philosophies, like Acton Academy is a really big one that they're, I think they have almost 500 schools internationally um, there's different types, there's different chains of Montessori schools, there's Waldorf schools, there's so many different approaches to educating whole, successful, well-rounded, well-grounded humans, um, nurturing kids through that developmental process of learning how to become competent adults. There's so many different approaches out there. And I think most people don't know because it's really hard to find information on it, but but once you know where to look, there's a lot of different options to choose from. Right. And um, yeah, I loved what you touched on um, there at the beginning about how even like these private schools, quote, private schools, that's that's what we get. That's our mental model, the, the primary mental model. It's public school. It's private school, which is the same thing as public school. But just maybe, as you said, with a maybe a, a Christian twist on it, maybe the curriculum is five percent different. Um but the general structure of it is no different at all. Um, or there's homeschool in which, uh, again, you touched on it, where people think that they have to sit at their kitchen table and recreate schooling at home. And, um, you know, it's eight hours a day and your kids are bored. And then that's where you run into those stupid um, objections. Well, well, you know, what about socialization? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you ha- if you had a nickel for every time you heard that, you could probably be rich right now. I bet, you know, well, what about the yeah. socialization, you know? Um, Definitely. But I came at this. So so I've been sort of at least uh, curious and um, uh, engaged in this space um, for about 10 years now. But I, I, I only now have a three year old daughter. But um I have been following um, the libertarian homeschooler for quite a while, Anna Martin. I take it. Are you familiar with her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love what she did with her kids and um, you know, Hey, it's, there's no one size fits all, but um, you know, unschooling her two boys and um, doing the self-directed learning with them um, and really trusting them and, and, I think with that, the, 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 I saw a meme recently, I think from the honest teacher and he said, uh, unschooling is not unparenting. And I think that's the, um, the key there with unschooling. People think it's just laissez faire, hands off, let the kids do whatever they want, no rules, no boundaries. And that's not the same thing. And if that's what you're doing, then, then I think you're doing it wrong. Um, and the way that the libertarian homeschooler, did it where she was very, um, you know, posting regularly about kind of the the journey that her boys were on. Um, and they're almost grown now. Um, it's been fascinating to watch, but it's very much entwined with parenting. Um, and you can't sort of disentangle those two concepts of education and parenting. 
Um, but what, what do you think about the libertarian homeschooler and kind of, you know, the notion of schooling and parenting? I think you're right that they are very entwined. I think that you can't, there's a very broad spectrum of what unschooling can mean. And people have very strong opinions of like, they, they think it means one place, one point on the spectrum. And then they have very strong opinions about that one point on the spectrum. And there's a lot of different things that it can mean. Um, and I think a lot of it hinges on the, the kid too. There's a lot of room to customize how you're approaching educating your kid at home based on the needs of your individual child. Some kids are very self-directed. Some kids are very academically leaning. Some kids are very project focused and you can craft the level of support that you're offering them based on, based on those individual needs. I think like for younger kids, it's kind of a changing, um, a changing set of requirements around how much support and attention kids need as they get older. Cause when they're little, in some ways they need a lot more direction, right? Like you can't just sit them down with a book and say, go learn about Greek philosophy. Like they need more guidance where it's like, Hey, let's go to the kitchen and let's bake a cake and let, let me show you how measurements work. And we can talk about like what a, a fraction of a cup means and we can talk about what these bigger words in the recipe that you don't you don't recognize what those mean. Like you can teach through doing things that your kids are naturally excited about because they think the kitchen's cool because grownups hang out there and they like cake. So it's like, okay, this sounds like fun. But in some ways, like younger kids, they're learning the basics that which are infused in everything. So they don't necessarily need to be in a formal classroom type setting throughout the course of their day, they can spend most of their day running free, playing, exploring things that are interesting to them and learning through doing those things. So the type of like, they need more structure to learn specific things. You can't just send them off on their own to figure it out, but they also require a lot less formal instruction in general, like to, to learn, like they can just kind of learn through doing. But then as they get older, like they can become much more self-directed, but they also like are probably going to spend more time on focused learning as opposed to just doing things. And, and that as they get older, I feel like it gets customized more on a child by child basis. Um, there was a, a, an unschooler in Utah who became pretty Twitter famous over this past year uh, named Cole Summers. I don't know if he ever crossed your radar. I don't but think so. That doesn't sound familiar. I use past tense because he he passed away this summer. Um, but he was a 14-year-old rancher in Utah who was unschooled and he owned his own ranch and had bought and flipped a house and he owned his own tractor and he had like multiple LLCs and he wrote an autobiography and he was like working on all these crazy projects in a very self-directed manner. Um, and like he was able to do that because he had a lot of space to go explore the things that he was interested in and he was like just really loved learning through doing. So he'd try stuff and think it was really cool and want to go try something else. And so like, you get kids that are very wired that way. I wasn't formally unschooled. I was homeschooled, but definitely there were a lot of unschooling underpinnings to how my homeschool experience was structured. Um, and I was a very academic kid. So I was really excited to sit around and like listen to lectures all day and read books because I thought that was fun. So I think there's a lot of room to customize the experience, but I also think, to go back to your question about parenting specifically, like it's not an uninvolved, like I'm just going to let my kid roam and hope that they like turn out okay by the time they're 18. I don't think that's what unschooling is supposed to mean at all. It's about like 
you're exploring the world with your kid and you're kind of guiding them towards the next level of challenges and information based on where they're at. And you're constantly assessing where they're at and saying like, oh, they kind of have this level of understanding in this area that they're interested in. This is what nudging them towards the next step or putting the resources for the next step in front of them looks like. You're definitely facilitating the process. Well, you're, faci the you're facilitating their um, evolution into adulthood and, and turning them into a productive member of society in a way that the traditional school model doesn't. I mean, they totally isolate the kids from anything to do with real world and the society. And then they hit up 18 and then they're like, there you go. You go, go, go to it, hop to it. You're an adult now and expect you to just figure it out on your own. It's like, no, you should have been teaching them that from the time that they were born and, and preparing them and laying the groundwork and guiding them while they're still under your tutelage so that if they make mistakes, they can do so while you, you're still providing a safety, a safety net for them. And I think, um, it's just that that awareness. I think everything has been on autopilot for far too long um, where we just, you know, yep, my kid's four. I'm going to send her off to pre-K and then kindergarten. And then, you know, we just do the grind for 12 years and then send them off. And then for four more years and then, you know, there's a total disconnect. It breaks apart the bonds of the family. And then that's how you wind up with where we are today as a society. Well, you know what? You've spent 12 years of their formative life sending them away to be educated by people who probably don't share your values or they might not. And um, they're not even really being influenced by them. They're mostly being influenced by other peers of their same age. Um, and then you wonder why we are suffering such a massive, we're so be far behind in actual knowledge. Um, IQs are dropping. There could be various reasons for that too. Um, and I think to my mind, I think that's actually possibly what's spurring on a big part of the mental health crisis that we see in this society. It's because we just have alienated and isolated kids, given them no purpose, no direction, told them anything of any of their ideas are useless. Only our ideas are germane and um, that's what you should focus on. And then you wonder why kids feel so De de depressed and defeated and anxious. Um, and I think it, all of this is intertwined. And um, I really think we need to get back to a place where we can reinvigorate authentic communities. And that starts with the family. And that starts with reclaiming education. Yeah, I think the, the purpose thing is really important. School never addresses kids' individual passions and purposes. And that's hugely problematic because it means that kids are they're entering the they're they're entering the classroom with no context for anything that they're learning. The only context that they have is that teachers say that the things that they're learning are super important and they have to stress out about test scores or they're going to ruin their lives. And there's all these requirements for things that they're supposed to be learning now and next and anything that's a distraction from that is not a good use of your time. And kids end up like incredibly stressed and burdened by all of this, but also with like a deep sense of kind of being cast adrift, like what, why are you spending all your time stressing out about these things? What are you going to do with it? 
And it leads to kids that graduate the education system with no clue what they're going to do because the whole system is pushing them towards college, the whole K through 12 system. And then in college, there's all this pressure to pick a major and do really well in that major and figure out what you want to do with your life. But it's not coming from a a deep sense of self-discovery. It's coming through the like color-coded quizzes that a guidance counselor gives you in high school where it's like fill out all the things that you like to do and we'll tell you what your top three career choices you know are what? and I still remember it wasn't actually me but my best friend at the time my best friend in high school he's a he's a, a guy and I remember his top career was oil well driller <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, imagine being a seventeen-year-old school uh, kid in school or school and having some test tell you you're going to be an oil well driller. You know, just what I wanted to be. I mean, talk about you know defeated and and useless. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's hugely problematic, and and the separation of. Like I think there is a real cultural disconnect too that comes from the the, the separation of the family through like I I grew up like I feel like I grew up outside of the matrix and then I reached a certain level of consciousness about the world around me when I was in high school I feel like is when I kind of became cognizant like deeply cognizant of this where I started looking inside the matrix and I was like this place is weird. Um, and there were so many different things. Like I remember talking to my family one night at dinner. I was like, you know, like most families only ever see each other at dinner. I was like, that's really weird. Like I, and nowadays not even that it's like, you know, you go from school to your sports and then maybe you pick up some fast food on the way home. And then the kids retreat to their rooms to do some homework and then it's shower time and bath time. And then after all that, I mean, how much quality time have you actually spent with your child at that at that point in time? Twenty minutes, thirty minutes? Yeah, in one it's day. Really weird. In one day, yeah. It's it's really weird. Like I grew up like my parents. My dad worked from home. My mom was a stay at home mom, and my sister and I were homeschooled, and so we like we were around each other all the time, and it was great, and we like really liked each other. And like, I, we get really excited when we spend time together still, now that my sister and I are adults, like, because we were able to build a relationship. And I remember watching little kids get on the school bus when I was in my older school years and thinking like, those, they're, they're tiny, they're so little and they're going away for the day. And it's just a very weird, like, we're not really wired to, like, we weren't designed for this. This is a very new concept to have the family completely separated like this. Um, and it's, and it's the separation is coming. Like not only is the separation weird and unnatural, but then kids are being sent to a very weird and unnatural place that really is very much like a factory. It's a very cold, sterile systematized environment. Um, some people would liken it more to a prison, but factory probably works. <laughs> I've heard it go both ways. Uh. Um, either one is a, is you, you, either metaphor works, but it's a, it's a very, it's a very strange system that kids are being forced into and they're being forced into these very limited molds to become, you know, like what cogs in a big systemic wheel for society. It's a very strange, when you're looking at it from the outside, it's a very weird place, but most people just take it for granted. It's just what you do. Did you ever feel um, uh, like left out or did you ever question you being homeschooled? Did you go through a phase like, man, why can't I be with all the other kids, you know, or 
what did you accept it and trust your parents that they knew what they were doing and you were okay being the weird kid or the outsider? There were definitely moments. Um, I was a pretty social extroverted kid and we had a lot of homeschool groups that we were a part of throughout my childhood, but there were ebbs and flows and seasons in those groups where sometimes there would be uh, like not as much social interaction occurring. And I had never been in school. So I had this like very romanticized picture of what, like there must be all these really fun kids who are in school just down the road waiting to be my friend if I decided to go too. Um, it definitely wasn't that way, but in my head I thought it was. Um, but there were definitely moments where I, I almost went to high school. I remember I thought really strongly about it, ultimately decided to stay homeschooled. But there were definitely a couple inflection points throughout the journey where like we all sat down and we talked about it extensively. And I seriously considered going to public school. I'm so glad that I didn't. But I also like on it the day to day, I was very happy to be homeschooled to the point that like if I wouldn't if, if I wouldn't do my chores or something, my my mom's incentive to me would be like, you you have to help or I'm going to send you to school to which I would say, no, don't do that. I'll do whatever you want. Um, it was a very effective, you know, that's fun. I'm from Indiana originally. My mom's threat, my mom's favorite threat. She was a single mom, you know, was, um, you know, cotillion. Don't make me send you to cotillion. Like that was the worst thing. No, manor school. Ah, no, please don't make me go to manor school. I'll take my elbows off the table. Okay, mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So what, um, what drove your parents? I mean, because probably when they were homeschooling, it was far, far, um, less common, not that it's super common today, but it has sort of been mainstreamed a little bit. And especially obviously these last two years. So what was it that drove your parents to want to homeschool? There were a lot of factors. So for context, I went to a private preschool and kindergarten, like a very Montessori inspired preschool and kindergarten. And then I was homeschooled first grade through 12th grade. So I, my parents started homeschooling me in like, I guess, 2003. And I graduated from high school in 2015. Um, And it was a very different world then. There were a lot less resources on the internet. There was a lot less conversation about homeschooling. There were a lot fewer homeschoolers in the country. Like it was definitely, the numbers were much higher than they had been a decade or two decades prior, but it was nothing like like the way it is now where there are millions of homeschoolers around the country and it's a very uh, resource rich time to be researching homeschooling. So my parents, um, I think my mom had a couple friends who had been homeschooled and like both my parents were familiar with the general idea. And I grew up in like a, a fairly rural school district that wasn't great. And the the private school that I had gone to was um, like, it was already ahead of where the, the public schools were. So I remember my mom and I went to visit the, like the end of year, like at the first grade, a first grade classroom at our local elementary school when I was at this, the latter portion of my kindergarten year at this private school and they were doing their end of year math test. And I already knew all the answers because we'd already covered all of this in kindergarten. And so my mom was like, okay, we definitely can't send her here. Like, that's not going to work. She's going to hate it. Um, and then we went and visited a bunch of different private schools. So like I got the whole 
education spectrum tour at like six years old. And I remember it because my parents took me to all these different schools and I was fascinated. So like we went and visited a Waldorf school and we visited like a hybrid school where you'd go two days or three days a week. And then the other half of the time you'd be homeschooled. Uh, We went to some like real project-based schools, went to some local private schools and just none of them were the right fit. So ultimately my parents decided to homeschool me and I thought it sounded super fun because uh, I had a baby sister too. And I was like, I get to be around the sister all day. I get to like, we get to work on all the, my, my parents hyped up all the projects we were going to be working on. I was super sold, but I was the oldest kid. So I was, it was a big experiment. They didn't really know how it was going to go, but it was the best available option. Um, and my parents were very pro them being the custodians of my education, the facilitators of it, and being able to to educate me in the way that they thought was best, not just sort of outsourcing me to a system and hoping for the best. And I think there were also some big, um, like I got, I was just like a very, um, a kid that was very shamelessly me. And like, I had bright red hair. I stood out. I was an easy target. So I got picked on pretty badly in kindergarten. And I think my parents were a little worried about that happening again in public school and just like my spirit getting crushed into like the conformist mold so that I wouldn't stand out anymore. Um, and my parents really didn't want the, the way my mom always said it. She said she didn't want my peers raising me uh-huh. and she didn't want pop culture raising me. Right. And those two things are very synonymous because yeah. like, I remember the, the girls in my kindergarten class would like, they knew all the lyrics to Britney Spears songs. And my mom was just like, what, you're, you guys are five and six. You shouldn't be singing this stuff. Right. And so my parents had a real aversion to that too. They didn't want me exposed to any of that, uh, for which I am very grateful because that's another thing. Like when you're looking at it outside the matrix, pop culture is weird too. Like it has its good things, but you have to be selective about it and you can't well, be selective. And, and I'm going to go, people. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole just briefly, but you know, yeah. I, I think pop culture and the culture, well, it is, um, uh, controlled by leftists, and uh, there is, um, I think, a deliberately um, a deliberate message that they are pushing, and they want us to be, um, you know, I guess sinful. Let's put it that way. So, if you're a, cr- a Christian, they want us to be sinful. They're pushing satanic messages, um, and you don't get ahead in the uh, Hollywood or in the music industry unless you are willing to say and do and push those messages. That's just how it is. It's, it's a, it's a big club and you ain't in it. And they're doing that because they want to influence our minds, shape our kids, get our kids to buy into what they're selling. I mean, that's why you see all the, the leftists that are doing the celeb, you know, the celebrity endorsements of all these leftist candidates. And so it's all intertwined. And I think too many parents don't realize that. And, um, that, that, that it is now, of course, that, you know, gets us to the question of how do we tackle that? Because you can't live in a bubble. And um, that's when homeschoolers and people, uh, uh, alternative schoolers, I guess, might be a better say, uh, way to put it, are that's when you do get that reputation of unsocialized because, you know, you're trying to put your kids in a box and everything. And so there is a, a line to, to toe, I guess. But I mean, it all is all... Um, interrelated. Um, You can't separate society and culture from parenting families and schools. It's, it's one big matrix, but in, in the way that our current society is set up, that matrix is set up 
to make to separate the child from the parent at an early age, to break the bonds of that family, to destroy the family, and to provide them with images of uh, cool celebrities that they can aspire to, those role models, as opposed to real ones in your life that should be inspiring and encouraging you, as opposed to these booty shakers that you see on TV um, that are, are leading your kids in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think there's when not navigated with intention at at the very least to take like a very soft uh, approach to this first. And we'll delve into like more depth with this in a minute, but like on, at, in the simplest and gentlest terms, um, there's a lot of very negative um, lessons that pop culture is teaching your kids. And if you just ignore it completely, it's like where, where your kids put their attention is what they become. Uh-huh. And everybody who pays attention to kids at all knows that this is incredibly obvious. You put your kid in front of like lots of, I don't know, books about trucks and lots of like they are around a lot of trucks and like they learn a lot about trucks or whatever. Like, you you know, you have them like they're around horses all the time. They think horses are really cool. Like they have their own innate interests and proclivities and desires obviously but they're also like they they mimic things kids are kids are mimics it's how they're wired to learn they that's why they like play kitchens and play store and play school and play banking it's because it's how they make sense of the world around them so you have to be careful about what you're exposing your kids to but at the same time like you can't indefinitely shelter them from the world and you don't want to set them at odds with the world because and 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 I say this like I'm painting very broad brush strokes here because every kid is different. I don't think there is one formula for this at all. But like you have to make sure that they have a really strong foundation so that when they when they encounter these things, it's not just totally throwing them off course. Like they have a center to come back to. Um, but I think like people just are we just don't like weird people. We don't like weird things. It, it weirds us out. Um, we, we gravitate towards like, like as a species. So (laughs) when you have, um, like, and kids are really brutal about this too. So if you have a kid who doesn't get all the pop culture references, um, they get mercilessly teased for it by the kids who are like, that's for whom that's their whole world. Uh, and I experienced this even when I was a young adult and I would hear people making references that I just like didn't get it all. Like I was, I was very homeschooled. Like I could tell you when I was a, a junior and a senior in high school, I was working on a vegetable farm and orchard. I was the only person who was in high school there. Everybody else was like, actually everybody else was a college graduate. They were like in their twenties. Um, I could at that point in time, like I could tell you, like we could talk about Socrates for hours, but I didn't know anything about mainstream pop culture. Like I'd seen a bunch of movies. I'd read a lot of young adult books. I knew a lot of like music that I liked, but it was very selectively like I paid attention to things that I personally liked, not what was cool. So when I started working at the farm, um, some of my peers were, or my, my coworkers rather were, uh, like they would make movie quotes or movie references all the time. Like I remember, 
I saw Jaws one time when I was a kid, but like it didn't really like it was a movie about a shark. It wasn't like a part of my lexicon for how I understood the world. And I remember we'd be picking apples and they'd always make this reference. They'd always be like, we're going to need a bigger bin. And I like never, it took me months to realize that that was a movie reference and they were quoting Jaws. And I was like, what else have I been missing? Like, I didn't know that I had no clue that any of this was going on because I was very homeschooled, but I wasn't sheltered. Like I understood how the world worked. I just didn't get pop culture references because I didn't care. But I think when you like, I actually think it's getting easier to raise kids to like intentionally not have pop culture raising your kids because there are more and more people who care about this. And there are more and more people who look at what pop culture is feeding their kids. And they're like, I really don't think Disney movies are the best way for my kid to like build a frame of reference for how the world works. I'd rather read them fairy tales and let their imagination do the work or people who say like, I don't know that like, I don't even know what's on kids TV these days, but like whatever the TV show is, they're like, I don't think this is the best way thing for my kids to be consuming. And when you have the numbers, it solves the biggest part of the problem, which is the social component. Like you don't want your kids to be totally isolated. You want them to have friends. And I think that's where a lot of people cave. Um, I've talked to a lot of parents about this where like, they don't really want their kids playing Minecraft or on YouTube, but all their friends are on YouTube or playing Minecraft. And so they're like, well, you know, I want my kid to be able to have friends and talk to their friends about the things their friends care about. But, and I'm not saying that this is easy to do by any means, but I think it's getting easier to find other groups of people who share those values where they're like, I don't want my kid on YouTube all day either. And you can get together and let your kids go build a fort in the woods or something. And, um, and, and I've heard too that even within the homeschool community um, or homeschool communities, let's say, I mean, that's obviously a very broad broad yeah. um, uh, umbrella, but like I'm in an online group um, with uh, uh, somebody who has been a homeschooler. They come from a Christian background and I can't say how they raised their kid or how they homeschooled, but that their teenage 16, 17 year old daughter has come out as transgender. So to me, I would be devastated. I mean, obviously as a, as a Christian, a woman of faith, and that's probably what the reason, part of the reason why you are homeschooling. And then they turn around and somehow, despite being homeschooled, decided to buy into this transgender mania anyway, would just be heartbreaking. And of course, she is heartbroken because she feels like she's lost her daughter. And, uh, you know, so even as homeschoolers, you're not and, and apparently from what I understand is it's, it's not that uncommon. I mean, it's probably, you know, less than in like your regular school settings, but there is still, um, a phenomena of this transgender radical gender ideology that's going through the homeschool communities as well, probably because a lot of it, it started online. It starts in these Tumblr groups, these online groups, and that's where you get the, and, and of course, homeschoolers being a little bit more independent and, you know, teaching self-directed and they might spend a little bit more time online and and um, on the computers and tablets, they run into these groups maybe, and then they start going down the rabbit hole and get led astray. Um, so I, I just, I feel for her because I can only imagine um, what it would be to, to try and base your life upon avoiding this contagion. And yet it still found you anyway. Um, you know, so it's, you're not immune, I guess, because it's the internet is everywhere. Yeah, there's, 
I've had a lot of conversations about like what role technology should and shouldn't play in a kid's education because there's there's hugely beneficial, unprecedentedly beneficial things about technology that there's so many things that it opens up for kids and allows them to do and accelerate their learning, but it also comes with enormous pitfalls and and dead ends and traps that kids can fall into. I mean, even just like developing a a chronic TikTok scrolling habit, even if you're not like there are ways like TikTok in and of itself is such an interesting topic because there are ways to use it where it's like the the kids version of Twitter, where it's like it, it's a younger audience, but it's serving the same purpose where there's like productivity information and life development information and like interesting facts about different things for kids to go and learn and research in the same way that Twitter works. Um, like there are ways to use TikTok that are extraordinarily beneficial. And most people don't know that, but like if you delve into how it works, kids can 100% have that experience. And then there's ways of using TikTok, which is what most people think of when they think of TikTok, where it's just like mindlessly scrolling through pop culture stuff and dance videos. And it's like an enormous waste of time. Um, I feel like the whole internet works that way for kids, but you have to be like, it, it can be one or the other extreme. And so, but, but also like, it's so prevalent in, in the world and is like technology is going to be an enormous part of almost everyone's future. There are going to be very few jobs that we're preparing kids for that don't require a heavy digital presence. And so it's also like, you know, we're raising kids that are digital native, so we can't like separate them from it entirely. It becomes a very complicated conversation very fast. And everything that I say comes with a caveat of like, I have the... I think I feel like it's an interesting perspective of kind of having grown up with a lot of this technology. Like I was growing up as YouTube was growing up and like, you know, as, as things were becoming more available and I had like a limited, limited access to technology when I was younger. And then when I was in high school, it was like pretty much, you know, go do whatever you want kind of thing. Um, but I also don't have kids. So everything that I'm saying is coming from like research that I've done and people I've talked to, but not my own, parenting experience so like take everything that I say with a grain of salt but I think like I just I personally keep coming back to like I think that there are a couple like I don't think that you can completely shelter kids from technology most of the time and have it work terribly well because like then you're kind of at odds with the kid and I think in some ways that makes the the rabbit holes more tantalizing it's like uh, this is kind of a controversial opinion but it's like in Europe, the the drinking age is much lower. Like it's very common for a high schooler to have a glass of wine with their family at dinner. And it's far less common for kids to go to college and get trashed because alcohol is just not this, right. this forbidden thing that they've like want to go try and get in trouble with because they're feeling rebellious. And I think tech kind of has the same effect where like, if you put yourself at odds with it as the parent, you're setting yourself up. If you have a rebellious child, you're setting yourself up for that to be the thing that they run to versus having it be a little bit more of like an open give and take dialogue that makes it less or like something that like they're kind of doing with you. And it's not this forbidden foreign thing that makes it less of something that they're going to like want to rebel with whenever they have the chance. And obviously every kid's different. This is a gross generalization. Um, but I think that's part of it. I think having really great dialogues with your kids is really important too. Like they're going to ask awkward questions sometimes because they're going to see weird stuff on the internet and they're going to be like, 
mommy, why is like this thing this way? Or like, what is this? And you have to be able to like, I think make them feel like I always felt like it was really safe for me to talk to my parents about like questions that I had about things. And I think that made me feel a lot more confident in my own ability to navigate stuff. And I think that's one of the big things I took from um, the the libertarian homeschooler too. um, from, she posted a lot of her dialogues that she had with her kids um, uh, about, uh, well, about she, about the principles that she was raising them with about property rights, about contract, about, um, not encroaching about the non-aggression principle, things like that. Um, and that was very instructive and, and, and it was good to see because she's trying to tease. She wasn't trying to, she was asking open-ended questions. She wasn't trying to lead them into an answer. And, um, I I like that word dialogue because it sounds more in depth. You're not talking at your kid. You're talking to your kid. And you're trying to reach a mutual standing. It's not uh, understanding. You're not just trying to um, fill them with information. You're trying to have a back and forth. And I yeah. think that's again part of um, the the paradigm, the the error that we're making in our schools. And um, obviously, I'm sure you're f- familiar with John Taylor Gatto and his weapons of mass instruction and his books, but um, kids are not just an empty vessel that you need to fill with useless knowledge. No, they, they need, uh, they, they are humans, people with interests and abilities and talents, and they should be able to cultivate those just like anybody else. And that's when we feel like they get directionless and purposeless is when we, cast aside their talents and their abilities and their interests. And we filled them up with ours. I, I had a, um, a, pr- a previous marriage and I had a stepdaughter and uh, she was 15 and she came to live with us for a little bit. And, um, you know, she bring home her school books from school and history. They're learning about the, the Tang dynasty and the Ting dynasty and the pottery of the Tang dynasty. I'm like, who the, who the F cares? Who cares about the pottery of the Tang dynasty? Nobody gives a shit. Nobody gives a shit. And and, and this is in no way, shape or form going to help her in the real world, get a job, find, you know, start a business, become a productive member of society. And yet this is all we do to our kids all day, every day is fill them with useless knowledge that they memorize and they forget. And it has no bearing on their life. It has no context. And we wonder why our kids are suffering today. Yeah. Well, it's, this is part of why, like by forcing all of this learning that feels like disconnected nonsense, we're destroying their love of learning when, and and the irony of it is that if you allowed a kid to like, they may never land on the pottery of the Tang dynasty and be fascinated by it, but it's also entirely possible that that's a rabbit hole that your kid will fall down for some reason. And they will be like, if they, they reach it in their own time and their own way, they will be fascinated by it. And usually the things that kids stumble on when they are like reaching interests on their own are useful to them in some way. Kids curiosities aren't these like disconnected random, um, sort of whimsies that a lot of people think that they are. We really underestimate um, just how human kids are and just how complex and exquisite the development of their intellect is. And like when you have, when you're, when you have younger kids, um, 
who become like fascinated by something super random, like they're really into dinosaurs or they're really into like gnomes or whatever. Um, it feels like a, a childhood whimsy where they're just it's like, oh, that's cute. Like, you know, Bobby's interested in dinosaurs. Like what a cliche. But really, this is a critical part of how kids' intellects develop because they're learning through being fascinated by things how to collect information and how to formulate questions and identify what information is missing and what they're curious about next and how things connect together. And then when they collect a large enough body of information, then they're learning how to synthesize it, which is an incredibly important piece of critical thinking. And when left to their own devices, every kid develops fascinations and they find these things to go learn about. And they like they this, these intellectual capacities will develop independently in almost every kid. You just have to give them the space for it. And when they're that curiosity is allowed to blossom, then as they get older, it expands and they become curious about more things. But there's still a, a logic to it. Like there's the same sort of governing principles of who your kid is and what they're interested in drives them towards all of these seemingly disparate interests. And those seemingly disparate interests over time make up this fabric of knowledge that helps them navigate the world. And I think like when I look back at my own homeschool journey, I never had my love of learning crush because I was never forced to go learn a bunch of things that I didn't care about. And so I was able to go chase all these seemingly disparate things that I found fascinating. So I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was going to say, and I I just, I'm loving what you're saying that there's just making such great points and kind of going along with what you're saying about crushing your love of learning, you know, what happens in school when I don't want to learn about the Tang dynasty and I have no interest. And so I don't care. I don't do the homework. I half-ass the report I'm supposed to turn in. I get a D on the quiz and then you're labeled stupid. You're labeled lazy. Uh, you're put on the, the, the dumb track, you know, nobody talks to you about going to college. They assume you're going to be a nothing and a nobody and how they treat you because you don't care what they're trying to force down your throat and what that does to a child's psyche. I mean, that's just terrible that, hey, because you didn't want to learn or you didn't find it all interesting, the random subject that they're trying to force you to learn about and you've kind of rejected it in in your own way, you're like kind of developing like a visceral reaction of like, I just have no desire to learn about this. Well, then you're labeled and you're sidetracked and and you get uh, your opportunities are diminished based on that. And it's just, it's terrible. It's terrible for kids' self-esteem too. Um, It's like the, the, the Einstein quote, if you, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life thinking it's stupid. Um, Like there are so many people who have internalized that they're not terribly smart because they're not, they either aren't good at like book academics, even though they might be brilliant in other important aspects of life, or they just weren't interested enough to retain information. And it's not even that they weren't good at book learning. It's just they didn't care because they didn't see the point. It wasn't what they were curious about. They wanted to be outside collecting bugs, not inside learning about, you know, whatever weird aspect of history that some bureaucrat decided was important for third graders to learn about. And so they think, well, I'm just like not in the smart classes. Um, when really, if they'd been left to their own devices, this this intellectual capacity that school is trying to systematize and then 
force everyone through this standardized process of developing their intellectual capacity, that um, would have happened just fine on their own. And I think it's it's so hard as an adult to trust kids' random curiosities because they often also look very irrelevant in the same way that the, the Tang Dynasty feel and the pottery of the Tang Dynasty feels. It's like, where in your life are you ever going to need that unless you're like a museum custodian, I guess, in a museum that happens to have Tang Dynasty pottery? Like, or you're like writing books on the history of pottery because why? I don't know. Like, unless that's your career path, this isn't important. And people are so... I, this is like a weird thing to talk about too, because I have like, I kind of, I feel like I sound like I'm contradicting myself when I'm talking about liberal arts education. Cause I'm very, very pro well-rounded, well-grounded liberal arts education. But the well-grounded part is the key where it's like, you have to be learning practical stuff first. And there has to be a reason for everything that you're learning with liberal arts. Like I, I 100% think that kids should have a really broad knowledge and understanding of how, how the world works, where we come from, how art works, because all of those things enrich their thinking, which then makes them a much them a much more adept thinker in whatever area they choose to specialize in. But the sort of like one size fits all scattershot, like we're just going to cover a little bit of everything for everybody approach to like a well-rounded education is really flawed. And that's how most people are exposed to these things. And that's why most people hate them. But like when I look back at my own education, it makes so many of the pieces of the thing, the random things that I was fascinated in make so much sense. Like a decade later, when I was in high school, I was fascinated by Greek literature and Roman literature. Like I just loved the old classics so much. Like I could just sit down and read like a Greek tragedy cover to cover and be totally engrossed because I thought it was fascinating. And like I was, I was very nerdy, but like a decade later, it makes so much sense why that was something that I was curious about because it was helping me. Like I couldn't have told you this at the time. I don't think I even could have told you this five years ago because I didn't know how the knowledge that I was going to glean from this was going to play out in my life. But like, I'm not doing anything that requires me to have a background in Greek tragedies. Like I'm, I hang out on Twitter all day and I talk on podcasts and I study education. Like it's not, it's not really, there's like not a direct parallel exactly. It's kind of a stretch to connect them. But like, I was fascinated by how human nature worked and I was fascinated by stories and I was fascinated by communication and I was fascinated by the development over centuries of Western thought. And all of those things have made me like having a background in those things have, has made me, a, a stronger thinker when it comes to education. It's like I have this understanding of, of these things that people were educated by centuries ago and and how human nature has evolved. Well, not really evolved because it's, it's all the same, but like how human nature has, has sort of ex- expressed itself throughout time. And that makes me like I have great metaphors to draw from now. And I have I have this this grounding that makes so much sense to me now why that was an important piece of my journey. But like if someone had forced me to read Greek classics and that like I wasn't interested in it because it didn't feel relevant to my natural curiosity for whatever reason, like I would have hated it. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's about it. um, your, 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 and you might not know it at a time, but I think it's about like connecting dots and you've mm-hmm. got this dot and you might not know it doesn't connect to anything right now. 
but that doesn't exactly. mean it won't down the line where, Hey, and, and exactly. I, I was, you know, thinking about this the other day where I, I grew up, I was a bookworm. I was the, the kid in class, you know, um, uh, reading under my desk rather than paying attention <laughs> to the teacher. And, um, but you know, it's great because you're using your imagination and you're kind of putting yourself in that situation. Well, what would I do if I were doing that, you know? And, um, you get a sense of how people kind of might act in a certain situation. And I think that has helped me um, nowadays to kind of be able to see through some of the bullshit um, mm-hmm. because I just had a better idea of how humans work. And, um, you know, just from my general love of reading, just, you know, putting yourself in those situations, understanding when and how people lie and, um, fabricate and and obviously i mean it's fiction but obviously every fiction is based in some grain of reality and these are kind of um archetypes also that are in our mind that everybody plays to so it's not like just outside of the the realm of reality in most cases um but i want to pivot to um uh talking about the conundrum we're in right now with parents and i think one of the biggest challenges that we must tackle and we must create solutions for is the bind that parents find themselves in right now, which is our public schools. Not only are they failing, I mean, we, you know, we've been living with that forever, but they are actively trying to indoctrinate and recruit your children into these cults. I mean, I mean, for lack of a better word, but these uh, groups and in that indoctrination, kind of what we talked about before with the societal cultural forces that are at play, um, they're coming for your kids, basically. Um, so most people are starting to wise up to public schools. However, then we go to private school. Well, even if you thought it was a better alternative, you're priced out of it in most cases, um, which then leads you to homeschooling. Well, again, if you can't afford to private school, probably you're not in a position to necessarily uproot your life and start homeschooling. What if you're a single parent? Uh, what if you have to work 12 hour shifts at your job? So you're just what stuck. So I think our job right now is to come up with solutions for the parents who are dissatisfied. No way in hell do I want to put my kid in public school, but can't homeschool, can't afford to private school. Where is that middle ground for that parent? I think there's, I think on a a midterm time horizon, like over the next five years, we're going to see a lot of things happening that are going to help with this problem, which I'll I'll come back to answering your question directly in a minute. But I just want to share first, like, I think it's important to like talk first about why I'm really optimistic about this in the long run, because I really am. Um, First of all, Arizona passed its ESA, like, like kids, the funding is now accessible to, um, state funding is now accessible to students to take to whatever um, whatever schools they want to attend, not just their local public school. This ESA program is um, going to be very interesting to watch unfold in Arizona because I think it's really going to change the national conversation around education. I think a lot of people in other states are going to be very jealous and be like, wait a second, how come my kid is like stuck in private school, but if I move to Arizona, I could send them anywhere? Like, I'm paying taxes already. Why can I not access this money for my kid? Um, and I think we're going to see a really big shift in the national sentiment about this over the next 
few years, um, very optimistic about changes that are going to be start to be demanded um, over the next few years stemming from that. Um, I also think that there are a lot of innovators who are directly addressing this problem. There's a lot of um, like ESAs aren't the only way to access state money. There's uh, quite a few grant pro programs in quite a few different states that are also available to parents that most parents don't know about, but there is actually a lot of money out there that you can access. Um, and I would recommend any parent who feels like their kid is stuck in public school, I would very strongly recommend doing some research on um, Vela, V-E-L-E, or V-E-L-A rather, is a really great organization to use as a jumping off point to go do research on what is out there. Um, there's also, um, like there's a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs who also know this is a problem and are trying to figure out how to fix it because every problem that human face, humans face are, is a great opportunity if you're able to figure out how to solve it. So there's a lot of different alternatives to these sort of siloed models of like, okay, well, it's either going to cost a lot of money to send my kid to a private school, or it's going to, I'm going to have to sacrifice uh, like part of my income or something else to be able to homeschool them. Neither of those feels like viable options. Prenda is a really cool example of this. They're only in five states right now, but they're actively working to expand. They're, um, they're in Arizona, Kansas, Colorado, Louisiana, and I think West Virginia is the fifth one. Um, but again, actively working to expand 100% work, look, worth looking into if you're a parent looking for options. But the way Prenda works is it they tap into state funding. So for each kid that goes to Prenda, they get whatever the, like that kid is able to spend whatever their state allotment is. So like we'll say $7,000 a year on Prenda. So you get um, like 10 kids in a micro school that $70,000 is being allocated to that micro school for the year. And so Prenda like runs micro schools. It hires a parent to be the teacher in that micro school. The parent makes um, say like $60,000 as a salary for the year. And then the other, like what the remainder is sent back to Prenda HQ to keep the whole operation running. So like a parent's able to quit their job, make a full-time living teaching the micro school, they're teaching their kids for free. And then other local families can also send their kids without any out-of-pocket costs because it's being paid for by state funding. Um, so that's a really interesting model that I expect. There's a lot of energy behind Prenda right now. I expect that to, to grow very quickly. Um, there are people who are working on like self-directed learning centers where they're not offering or like almost like co-working spaces for kids where they're not necessarily offering a specific program, but like the kids can come hang out there and do their work while their parents do other things. Um, homeschooling pods are really cool too. If there are parents who feel like, like there's a lot of creative ways for like, this is getting to more towards like the actionable now side of the conversation. There's a lot of really interesting ways that parents can also hack some of this stuff. Um, so like a lot of people think that like, I can't homeschool alone. Therefore homeschooling is a closed route for me. And that's not always the case. Um, they're like homeschooling pods are a really interesting movement where you have a group of families that are homeschooling together and they're sort of like tag teaming who has the kids when, while the other parents are working or like, you know, managing other aspects of their lives. I've known homeschool families who like both the moms worked and they just set up their schedules in a way where 
like one of them was working at the time and the other one had both of their kids. Like there's a lot of different ways to make this work if you really want it. Um, and there's also a lot of ways, like if you're a, a two income household, um, like there's a lot of like creative thinking that you can do to figure out ways to like scale some of that back, but not completely. And then like, you know, figure out how to manage, like really the childcare component, I think is the really big hurdle for a lot of people. Yes. Try to figure out homeschooling because kids don't necessarily need that much instruction time on a daily basis. Right. And so like when you separate the thinking that way, I think it makes it a lot easier to start to figure out, okay, well, how do we solve the childcare problem so I can get my kids out of school? Because like what, like what really is more important than getting your kids out of government school? Like that is a huge priority for a lot of people. And it's really important. You don't want to lose your kids potential to that. So I don't know how helpful that is, but those are my Yeah. I mean, that I think you touched on it. You, you hit, hit it with the, the childcare problem. Um, you know, because people have to work, especially in this inflationary environment. Um, you know, I mean, I think society for, uh, you know, it's set up right now, they, they want us to fail at every turn, you know, that's why they make us sicker, poor, uh, dumber, etc. <laughs> and I think, I think for the most part, it's a deliberate and it's kind of like a only the strong survive type scenario where you, you yeah. have to, they put pitfalls and roadblocks all along the way. Um, and, uh, because the more you fail, the more they win, unfortunately, the people who are, whoever you want to think the shadowy figures at the top, um, (laughs) whoever they are, um, do you have time to keep going? Yeah. Well, I have something that I want to add to that really quickly. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Yeah. Um, which is that we have like, and, and this is a this is a controversial thing to say, and I say this with this the utmost empathy for the individual situations that everyone finds themselves in. Like this is not as simple as I'm making. I it love sound, controversial things. Usually, I agree I also, with that. <laughs> I also think this is an important thing to say, which is people will move mountains to make homeschooling work if they really want it to. Like people will move into smaller houses. They will sell their second car. They will you know, take a really big income cut and stop taking vacations and like cook all their meals at home because that's how they can make the numbers work to homeschool their kids. Like my family, when I was growing up, like my mom cooked every night. So like we had like food was cheap because she was like buying things in bulk and cooking for us. And that was like a value too. It wasn't just because she was homeschooling. She would have done it anyway. But like that made it a lot easier for my family to survive on one income while we didn't have these huge discretionary expenses and homeschooling was a very viable option, but it wasn't like, you know, we were, my parents valued my sister and I being home and not being in the education system above like getting takeout a couple nights a week. And I think that's a really important thing to like look at directly. If you are unhappy with a school system and you don't want your child there and you don't have the resources or you don't want them to be in a private school or there isn't an option that's like logistically viable or for, you know, for whatever reason, I think it's really important to be really honest with yourself too about like, okay, how badly do I want my kid to not be in the education system? And like, do I value that more or less? Like, do I value all these other like luxuries that are expendable in my life over having my kid in like, you know, having my kid in public school and having like a higher income. And that's, it's controversial because it sounds like a very harsh thing to say, but it's also how much I are think you, how much do you value your kids 
I, I mean, I think a lot of people are afraid to say it. And right. I think it's really important. Like what, what do you value most? Like your kid's education is the foundation of their entire life mm-hmm. is your, you know, your takeout and your, your Mercedes mm-hmm. or your like new, new expedition that you're making payments on or whatever. Is that more important than that? I, and it's fa- fine if it is, but you have to name it. Yeah. I'm a fan of harsh truths. Hannah's dropping some harsh truths here. I had another uh, homeschooling parent, uh, mother of seven. They're grown, but uh, kind of an OG, called a pioneer of homeschooling. And she kind of said the same thing. Look, you you might have to make some sacrifices, but these are your kids. Come on. These are your kids and they're worth it. Um, I want to talk about older kids, the ones that are teenagers and with parents who are trying to decide what to do with them, what direction they should take. Because I think um, what sort of happened is parents were caught off guard these last couple of years. So you're kind of, as I mentioned before, going along on autopilot, you know, not really doing too much or just kind of letting things chug along. And then COVID happened and the veil is lifted and you see what's really happening uh, with your kids and in their schools and um, you're horrified. And, but it's almost like this is where it becomes hard for parents. And I do sympathize um, with their plight that um, they can't just yank the rug out from under their kids. I mean, if your kid was already planning on going to college and what are you going to say to them, but your 16, 17, 18 year old child that's already been doing college visits and, and and sending in applications, um, that no, I don't want you to go to school anymore. Go to these colleges where you're just going to get more woke indoctrinated and possibly uh, turned against me as a human being. And and you're going to think I'm a racist and a bigot and everything. How do you navigate that? And I think it might be a a good segue. I know you have a Praxis background, um, Mm -hmm. maybe to talk about Praxis and any other um, solutions you see for that problem. Yeah, let me let me address the first half. I have so many thoughts on this. Let me address the first half of this first and we'll go to the practice side. So I think you have to like to go back to the naming things point. Like you have to name the different or like become a cognizant of the different pulls on the situation that you find yourself in at that point in time. Like if you're your kid is 16, 17, they've been on a college track, you're becoming more and more uh disillusioned by the college path for your kid. And you're like not, you're not feeling the whole, like, I'm not sure this is the right path for my kid. You also have to think like, you might be entirely right. And I'm, I'm very biased against college. I think you probably are right. Um, But I think it's like, there's other factors at play too. Um, And one of them is the fact that you're, you're trying to raise a competent adult and a self-sufficient adult. And by 16, 17, your kid is very close to that. They're clearly are not an adult yet, but like they're, they're getting pretty close to that inflection point. And when you think about, like, if you think about the, um, like childhood as this continuum where on one end, they are fully dependent on you. Like they are like practically attached to your body. They like can't survive without you to like in 18 years, they're going to go off into the real world and be like fully navigating that on their own. And if you think about that process, like ideally their level of independence is slowly creeping up 
with each passing year so that they are like, if, if they're down here at requiring complete attention and have zero independence when they're a baby, and then at 18, they are fully independent or relatively so they can navigate the world on their own. Like it should be kind of a, a gradual progression where like with each passing year, they become more independent and more like you're trusting them to make their own decisions. And you're like there to guide them and facilitate that and talk through things with them and challenge them. But like they're building this sense of competence. I think school does a very, very bad job of that. Like in a lot of ways, pop culture sort of pushes kids to grow up a lot faster than they naturally ought to. But at the same time, school is like stifling all of their independence. Kids are 18 years old, seniors in high school. They have to raise their hand to ask to go to the bathroom. And then all of a sudden, like they go from like no allowed independence to then like, you know, there's a little ceremony. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, go to the big city by yourself and have fun. Like try not to, you know, get, get, you know, in any trouble with anybody. Right. Um, like we're doing this in a very, very backwards way and we're not setting kids up for success at all. So when you look at it from that angle, like when your kids are 16, 17, like you really have to involve them in the process of talking through this and like guiding them to see what you're seeing. You can't just tell them. I think college is a bad idea because they're going to, well, one, a lot of teenagers are rebellious. So they're going to say, well, mom doesn't want me to go. So now I really want to go. But there's also like, you know, they, you need to help them get there themselves. And I think leading questions are really helpful to that end and having them like prompting them to do more research. Like, you know, how much does college cost? And like, what is, what are the, what does a loan like that look like? Like, this is a great opportunity to learn about how banking works. Let's talk about like what an interest payment is an interest rate is and how you're going to be like, um, like what it's going to actually look like to pay off the loan and how you're going to budget for that and how long it normally takes and the statistics on how many people default on their college loans and like what your projected salary is going to be when you graduate. And like that all sober a kid up real fast if they all of a sudden realize that they're going to be in debt for decades because of a college degree. Um, but also like, you know, talk them through what they're excited about in college and how they might even be able to get some of that before they even graduate high school and how they might be able to get that in other places um, like everything about the college experience can be unbundled 100% and gained for far cheaper, if not for free. Um, and I just did, I did a whole talk on this a couple of weeks ago that it's, uh, I think if you look up career hackers on YouTube, you'll find it for people who like want to go down this rabbit hole. Like I did a whole session on right, yeah. bundling college because it's something I think about a lot, but I think also like, you know, have a very first principles, like a very goal oriented conversation with your kids where it's like, what? What do you what do you want to do, be doing in a decade? What do you want to be doing in five years? What are you excited about? And then kind of work backwards. Like, what do you need to do to get there? And like teach them the process of this kind of like long-term thinking and planning. It's a very educational thing to be talking through this with them, but like treat them like the almost adult that they are and negotiate with them from that lens where it's more of an intellectual debate rather than telling them what to do, but expose them to other options too. Like I... To, to answer the part of your question about Praxis, I worked for a startup apprenticeship program that was a college alternative called Praxis for many years. And Praxis is in the business of helping young people who want to go work at startups but don't want to go to business school land an apprenticeship at a startup and learn by doing. And the program is $12,000 a year, but you're guaranteed to make back more than the full cost of the program while you're at your apprenticeship. So you like you come out, no debt, you turn to profit. And that's still cheaper um, than college. 
it's it's cheaper than a year of college. Right. Yeah. And and you're you're making a full-time income at the end. Um and you can bypass this entire four-year detour right. of that that college is and I think it's very um when you figure out what your kids incentives are and then you 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 give them reasons why like you expose them to reasons why those things might not like the thing the way that they want to get there like why those things might not actually be in their best interest or might not work as well as they think they will um that can be really helpful to sort of like open them up to different possibilities. Um, but also like, you know, if your kid wants to be a writer, they shouldn't go to school and study English. They should go write. They should go, they should go find a publication that they want to publish at and they should find really great editors to work with and they should go and join, like start a writing group and they should like go write the book that they've been dreaming about. They shouldn't put it off for four years, they could be, you know, your kid can be a contributor at all their favorite publications within a year, easy, without any college degree. So I think framing a lot of. All right. Sorry, we got cut off there for a second. So um, uh, I know Hannah was uh, telling us about Praxis. Um, it was towards the end of our uh, conversation anyway. So if you want to know more about Praxis, I suggest if you have a, a teenager, you're not sure about um, whether you want to send them to college or not, I definitely would encourage you to uh, look up Praxis, look into Praxis um, and get your kids into real life skills and real life learning and an apprenticeship that's actually going to serve them and guarantee them a job for far less um, than what you would pay to go to college. But um, I want Hannah to finish up by telling us um, about Rebel Educator, um, what plug anything you want to plug, and maybe just a tiny, small answer the question that I ask everybody, what can we do? And what's your pitch to parents um, about what we can do uh, in the coming months and years to reclaim, take back education? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so Rebel Educator, where it's it's uh, I'm I'm the founder. I have a team of writers and contributors that I'm working with. Um, we're basically trying to build the like the resource hub for the alternative education movement. So we want to be the starting point for parents who don't want to send their kids to school, but they don't really know what to do next. Um, we want to be the jumping off point to them for them that's linking them to all the innovators who are building schools, all the other thinkers in the space, all the other resources. Um, so right now we have a, a blog full of content that you can check out at rebeleducator.co. We have a podcast. Um, we're very, very active on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find us if you have, if you want to get kind of like a, a real time set of updates on the things that we're working on, the things that we're thinking about, the resources that we're sharing. Um, you're always welcome to DM me there as well. If you ever have questions, I'm it's just at rebeleducator. Um, and we have a Substack newsletter as well if, if newsletters are your thing. Um, and then you can also find me on Twitter. If you have questions about any of this stuff that I'm doing or anything education related, I'm just at Hannah Frankman. Um, but yeah, we have, I am, I am incredibly lucky to work with a team of absolutely amazing, extraordinarily talented writers, um, to help me create this, like, tell me build out this hub of information for parents. And like, we're just trying to solve, it's a huge problem that people don't know. Like there are so many people in the space working on building alternatives to the school system and they're doing a phenomenal job at it. There are some really brilliant people who are rethinking everything 
about education, going back to the drawing board, designing education approaches for different desired life outcomes. It's a very, very, very exciting time to be paying attention to education. We're on the cusp of a really big movement. And the biggest problem right now is that people have no idea this is happening and they have no idea where to find it. So I think that over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a complete shift and a complete reordering of everything education. I don't think public school is going to go away, but public school is definitely not going to be the the sole option. People are going to be very aware that there are other other options out there. And I think public school is 100% going to be on, like, I think it already is on the decline, but it's going to be very obviously on the decline very soon. I think a lot of people don't know it yet, but it's it's already on its way and, and that's going to speed up quite a bit. But people don't know where to find this stuff. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for parents to find everything that they need to know so that they can pull their kids out of the system. Because at the end of the day, it's a very individual thing. Um, education is very personal and the impact is very individual. Like kids are not a bunch of statistics. They're a bunch of individuals and every individual, you're either helping them or you're not. They're either having a great education or they're not. So like we win every time we free a kid from the clutches of the school system and we empower them to have an amazing education. We empower them to go chase their potential, to chase the things that they're interested in and to go build an amazing amazing education experience for themselves, which is the foundation for an amazing life. Like that's, that's what anybody working in education is really in the business of doing. And so in terms of things that parents can do, like really the most important thing is that it starts with your kid. It 100% starts with your kid. And the only thing that matters is the individual kids. Again, like it's, that's, that's the key to all of this. So like do everything that you can to build an amazing education for your kid. We've never, we live in an unprecedented time in history in terms of the amount of resources that are available at your fingertips. You don't have to get out of bed to find all of the resources that you need to educate your kid K through 12 and have them blow their public school competition out of the water. Like you literally do, you only have to pick up your phone. It's that easy. And we've never seen anything like that in the history, in in human history. But like take advantage of that and go do research, go find resources. Don't be afraid of not having enough information. I think this is one of the biggest things that trips parents up is they feel like, well, I'm not an expert. I'm not a teacher. I'm not very good at math. I can't educate my kid at home. Um, first of all, like a lot of teachers, like we, we, we put them on pedestals that we really shouldn't, like they're just people too. They just went through the education system, just like the rest of us. They just have, you know, most of them have an average IQ, just like the rest of us have an average IQ. Um, they're not, there's nothing inherently and intrinsically special about them that makes them qualified to teach your kids and you not like, yes, they studied education. That doesn't mean that they they have some magical power that allows them to teach your kids that you don't have. They want you to think that though. (laughs) Yeah. Don't. And it's okay if you don't have all the answers and it's actually a feature, not a bug because you, if you show your kids your process of finding an answer, if they ask you, Hey mom, why is the sky blue? And you're like, I don't know, but let's find out. You're teaching your kid a meta life skill that they will carry with them for their entire lives. And them watching you figure it out is going to empower that. Like, remember, kids mimic things. 
They're going to learn how you find answers and then they're going to find answers too. And they're going to become lifelong learners. So, and nobody knows your kid better than you do. And nobody cares about your kid more than you do. Like, yes, lots of people care about your kids a lot, but like they're your kid. They're the center of your world. Nobody's going to have that level of attention for their education that you are going to. So trust that. And in terms of like bigger, bigger picture things, um, like, you know, if school choice is something that you care about, get involved in that on a local level, um, make phone calls, find out what's happening in your state, get involved with that. If you want to, like, you're feeling entrepreneurial about this, look into starting a micro school. Um, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of resources for all of these things at parents' fingertips too. So there's, there's a lot of different jumping off points depending on what you're interested in. But at the end of the day, it starts with your kid. And that's, that's the most important part. Hannah, that was such uh, great information. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, I could have gone another 30 minutes, but I know we've all got obligations. I have a, I have a daughter I need to pick up from daycare and everything, but I, I hope uh, maybe I'll get you back on in the future, but I will be sure to um, include all of your resources and all of your uh, uh, socials and everything on the show notes page. Um, so make sure you check that out. Um, and uh, Hannah Frankman, the Rebel Educator, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I would, I would love to do this again. All right. Take care. Have a good one. You too.